Well, we are living in a day where it is critical that we mean business for God. And there's the tale of two ditches. There is the ditch that becomes so terrified of messing up, it can't enjoy liberty that's in Christ. And that is to be avoided. But the other ditch is so carefree and hyper-grace-filled, enjoying everything, you fail to see your own lust, perversion, abominations. And so somewhere in the middle, we have to walk with God in such a way that we enjoy our liberty that's in Christ, but we, use not, we don't use it as an occasion to the flesh. That we find the boundaries of Christ, the guardrails, the rumble strips, and in between those rumble strips of the highway, we enjoy doing the speed limit. We enjoy cruise control. We enjoy going with God at a, at a quick clip. We don't get into one ditch of just being so terrified of messing up that we can't enjoy our Christianity because I might sin against my God if I enjoy this ball game, or I might sin against my God if I laugh, or I might sin against my God if I oversleep once, or I might sin against my God if I enjoy a video game. But over here is this carefree, lawless, do as you will, that a lot of church is tracking into. So our endeavor as Christians is to come down the middle of the road, enjoy the liberty that Christ has given us, and yet the law that makes us free. And, and don't confuse the two. And, and understand the commandments of God set this huge boundary for us to enjoy. We don't hang out there at this one place of boundary. We, we, we don't hang out at the border. We don't hang out at the territory where God said, you know, I wouldn't go near that if I were you. I wouldn't flirt near that. I wouldn't depend on that. We have so much land in between this ditch and that ditch to enjoy. I don't know why we gravitate towards sin or weakness or porn or pride. Anyway, there's so much in between that boundary fence and this boundary fence. Run wild like a horse in between and be free. But at the same time, that there's a joy in Christ. I'm mindful of scriptures here, I'm finding, uh, where when sometimes when the Lord shows up, there's a horror and a dread. And the Lord shows up sometimes, and it isn't our Pentecostal hooping and hollering, and I'm all for it. But there's a time God shows up, and you fall on your face, and you say, like in Genesis, behold, a darkness and a horror. And it was because God showed up. And I, I don't have an interpretation for you. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abraham falls asleep and behold, lo, a darkness and a great horror. And then God said. And then he, Abraham sits up and he sees the carcasses split in half and he sees a torch and a lamp walk between them. I don't know what that is. It's God. But before God walked and spoke, there was a horror and a dread. And that horror and that dread... My best interpretation tonight is a, a reminding of, behold, I'm him speaking. I'm the creator. I have rebooted this world system time and time again. Don't get prideful. A good parent does that with their kids. Don't you cross me, boy. I made you. I'll make another. You'll never be my equal. And then when the child says, sorry, daddy, then you go get ice cream and have fun. 
But if you always think you're equal to your God, you're going to live under a horror and a dread. I, I, my interpretation there in Genesis 15 is that God just had to show him who he was. God, Abraham's crying out to God, and it says in God, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto righteousness. And, and Abraham starts asking questions, which is what we all ought to do in time of confusion. You have to commend the patriarchs. They didn't have scripture like we have. They didn't have doctrine like we have. They were, they were just bumping around in the dark, as it were, finding God, never knowing when God would show up again because they weren't taught how to seek God or manifest God through worship. And so when God would show up, God blessed Jacob and Isaac. They just start asking God questions. And I don't know why we don't do it more. We should. We should ask God more questions. It blesses me when I kid, my kids want to ask me questions, as long as they're relevant. <laughs> Sometimes you're like, please stop. And Abraham starts asking the Lord questions, and the Lord starts answering him, and Abraham can't help but start making sacrifices. And Genesis 15, 12 says, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Maybe we principalize that and say he spiritually fell asleep. Because we have at least three New Testament passages that command us to awake. And maybe the horror has to awake you out of your sleep and you realize, what am I doing? What am I doing? You ever been jerked awake and thought, did I just miss the bus, miss the airplane, the horror and the dread come upon you because you have overslept. You realize it's 8.45 and you're supposed to be at work at 7. Behold a horror and a dread because you overslept. Well, maybe, maybe this is Abraham falling asleep spiritually. How do you fall asleep in the presence of God? How do you spiritually fall asleep attending church regularly? And there are times God... I don't mean literally, but some of you do literally fall asleep every service. Some of you, hear me, I love you. You fall asleep every service you're in here. Get you a CPAP, crank that thing up, blow pure O2 into your skull, and honor God with your presence. So help me. I will pull video footage from the security cameras and we'll make a greatest hits. I don't want to do it. I won't ever do it. But don't give me a reason to be tempted to do it. I get it when you come in dozy from a long Wednesday, but four services a week? Dozing? I know the peace of God is here, but you should have it in your home. <laughs> Amen. So he falls asleep, and it says in verse 12, And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Maybe the horror and the dread is the reality of all that God is being shown to you and your knowledge and my knowledge of that we, we don't add up. We're not good enough. There is a good place to be reset in your heart knowing that he is the creator. 
He has made us and not we ourselves. And we probably need to have that kind of encounter on a regular basis. That doesn't mean every service, but it might need to be once or twice a year, maybe more, to be reminded he is God, we're not. Especially when we're dealing with a generation of Christianity that tells us God's our friend and our equal and our compatriot. And there's very little truth to any of that. We need to have this encounter with God when just an eyelash of God falls upon us and it nearly kills us, much less the full manifest glory of him. We need to be reminded this is a serious thing. We don't trifle with God. We don't play patty cake with him and we don't disrespect him. We have to be reminded that he is father and we're the mud. Just like daddy would have to say, boy, you ever talk like that to your mother again? They won't find you. That's my wife. Before ever you were, she was my love. And after you're gone, she'll still be my sweetie. And you talk to her like that again, you'll drink out of a straw. You have to be reset. And so I heard the Lord say, as we were sitting there in the presence of God, and please, every one of you hear this, because I perceive a great reset, not the one the world's kings are jonesing for, but perhaps a reset of the kingdom in certain cultured pockets. What do you fancy yourself? What is it you fancy yourself? What is it you see yourself doing? What is it, where is it you see yourself going? How do you carry yourself? I stopped in the presence of God to say, Lord, do I prophesy that? Is there, is there a more to this? If I say, this is what I hear the Lord say, what do you fancy yourself? Will there be more to unfold? But it's too big to prophesy, though I probably could have. It's more of something that needs to be taught. But what is it you and I fancy ourselves? What is it? What's the mental image of our life? Because we'll always steer our total being based on that fancy. If I fancy myself a hippie, it'll affect everything about me. I'll want to be known from the clothing I wear, and I use this because this is what I was. From the clothing, I purposely select clothing, select music, select verbiage. Before long, what I fancy myself automatically propels that. I don't even have to think about it. It's what I identify with. It's what I identify as. And before long, I don't even have to pronounce it. It's what I'm known by. Do you fancy yourself good looking? Do you fancy yourself wealthy? Do you fancy yourself a world overcomer? Do you fancy yourself more than a conqueror? Do you fancy yourself a victim? Do you fancy yourself a business owner? Do you fancy yourself a missionary? Do you fancy yourself uh, worthy of America's next top model? We, we joke, but most people who succeed in Christ have to totally throw on the altar any self-image, any ambition, any dreams. And if there's anything about your momentum or your present life you can't daily put on the altar and burn, it will become an idol. 
And it'll always contaminate what God wants to do in your life because you're too busy promoting you and your image rather than promoting Jesus Christ and his glory. And the world, the world's cultures always have some image they want to sell to their peoples, whether it's to be a chief or an athlete or an actor or a, do a doctor. What if God doesn't call you to be that? What if you're pursuing that and it's not the will of God, but you've learned to do it to mask insecurity? So like I said, I could prophesy, what do you fancy yourself and see what the Lord had to say after that? But to me, it's too much to prophesy. It needs to be taught. I had a friend, still have a friend. He fancied himself a wealthy, hoity-toity businessman. And he could not let go of that. It was evident to anybody close to him this is not the grace of God for your life. When he would let go of the fancy, he would gravitate naturally towards what God had called him to be, which was not a fancy hoity-toity, you know, Lexus, Mercedes-Benz, CPA, lawyer type. That's what he fancied himself. What he gravitated towards more was a little bit more blue-collar. And I don't know, I don't think there's anything wrong with being blue-collar. I think if we were to judge... Who has the better reputation, lawyers or blue-collar people? Politicians are blue-collar people. Real estate investors are blue-collar people. Who has the better reputation? Give me a plumber. Give me a welder. Give me an electrician. Give me a contractor because they work hard and honest, generally speaking. And there's corruption everywhere. He, he literally put himself close to a million dollars in debt chasing a fancy. And it was never God. Except he did pull a familiar spirit that kept ministering to him along that fancy. Thankfully, at one point, he finally humbled himself and got help and said to his pastor, Something's not right. And his pastor said, well, that's obvious. You're bankrupting your whole family. And it's going nowhere. And this is all because you fancy yourself something you were never called to be. What we need to say is, I fancy myself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of your epistles begin with Paul or Jude or Peter the servant of the Lord, not the pastor, not the missionary, not the CEO, not the half-brother of Christ, as Jude could have said, a servant. That's the one thing we have permission to daydream about. And then out-serve everybody. Because Jesus said, if you want to be greatest, you better get low real quick. Become servant of all. Who among you will be greatest? Let him be the servant of all. That's the one thing we can tonight daydream about and not run weird with it. Well, I'm sure somebody will figure out a way to make it weird, but tonight, let's dream about being a servant. Let's dream about serving our God as he calls us, not as our culture, not as our Baptist background, Methodist background, Pentecostal background, Word of Faith background, not as that calls us, not as 25 years of American Idol calls us, or 40 years of uh, 
Gospel Music Awards calls us or what have you. How about we just be a servant? And the Lord Jesus taught us in Luke, all the servant does is come in from the field and say, what now, Lord? I milked your cows, fed your pigs, slopped the hogs, cut some grain. What now? And if the Lord says, go make me some food, yes, sir. If the Lord says, why don't you take the rest of the night off? Yes, sir. If the Lord says, here's promotion, be over the 10 servants. Yes, sir. It doesn't matter. As long as it pleases God, it ought to please us. When you fancy yourself something for so long and it doesn't materialize, it can be absolutely destructive to your life. And I would encourage us to go back and see what, what have we fancied, what have we chased that wasn't Jesus, even if it was in the name of Jesus. If my friend can be born again, spirit-filled, serve in local churches and put himself nearly a million in debt, fancying himself a calling that was never a calling and have voices driving him, then certainly you and I can do the same thing, hopefully to a much lesser level. How long does it take to get out of debt when you're a million in the hole? How much money do you have to make as a business person to pay that thing off and still have money for a mortgage and kids and their college? What do you fancy yourself? What has God given you permission to fancy? I've taught this for years that you can daydream a lie. You can fabricate a lie. And in our circles, we fabricated all sorts of ministry callings. The sky was the limit. I shared this morning in Sunday school about graduating from the one-year program at Lester Summerall. I only went to one year. I didn't know what God had for me. I didn't know if I'd be up there forever. But at the halfway point of my first semester or the first year at Lester Sumrall's Bible School, I was offered the internship to go to Manila. Ironically, the only other person it was offered to was Gertie. Apparently, I was better because I was the one that got it. Or maybe not because it put me in a tailspin. And it seemed like the Holy Ghost. I actually still believe it was the Holy Ghost because of information that came out later. But this was the answer to my vision. This was the answer to my fancy because I'd always fancied myself a missionary. And I remember when this opportunity came up about December, January of 2004, 2005, I called Pastor Vaughn to submit it to him. And Pastor Vaughn said something to me that struck me down. And he didn't ever answer me or didn't, I didn't ask him any questions, but I knew, God bless him, his dark saying was kicking in. And I still hate that thing to this day, but it's what he did. He just wouldn't shoot you straight, and he had his reasons, and I think they're all dumb. But he's been dead 15 years, and I can talk this way now. I said, Pastor, I've got this opportunity to go to the Philippines to serve Lester Sumrall's ministry. It's a one-year internship I would commit to, and then we'd see what God would want to do after that. And the first thing he said, I was standing in the conference room at um, Earth Exploration there in India, Rock, Rockville Road. So I stepped in the conference room because he called me back. Let me help you guys. If your pastor calls you back, get someplace quiet. Don't wait to halfway through the conversation. Say, I'm sorry, I'm at Starbucks. I'm about to order. Because some of you do that. I would never do that to my pastor. I would say, Pastor, hey, you, Pastor, I'm in line at Starbucks. I just want you to know before we start talking. Oh, no problem, son. But some of you, God bless your soul, you will cut me off to place your order. I may just start hanging up. 
Some of you are really bad for that. I love you. I will endure. I don't need to be worshipped. Don't want to be worshipped, but I do, I think, should have some respect because I don't do that to anybody. I was talking to my mama yesterday on the phone. It was Friday. I said, Mama, hold on. I'm on Starbucks. I'm about to have to order. She said, okay. It's courtesy. Instead of waiting until she's talking and then just talk over her to the lady at the window. Anyway, so I stepped into this conference room to have some privacy with Pastor Vaughn. Told him I had this opportunity. And he said this. He said, well, you've determined you'll never be content till you get overseas. That's what he said. And I instantly knew that's not a good thing because I have doctrine on contentment. And he's telling me as my pastor, really at that point, father in the faith, I had determined in my heart I would not be content until I made it overseas. And that left me in a quandary because I knew that should not be my testimony. I should be content wherever I'm planted. But he was throwing me one of his curveball dark sayings, and it hit because I'm not an idiot. So I was left with that for the next four or five months, praying about this. It still seemed good. And true to form, my, the last 10 years of my life had been marching towards this. I thought of nothing but missions, nothing but missions, nothing but missions, nothing but missions, because I'm called, because I'm called, because I'm better, or I, I'm just designed to be a missionary, or it kind of fits my hippie vibe, or who knows what built the thing. An ounce of calling, a little bit of Nat Geo, a lot of Lester Sumrall books, and way too many John G. Lake Africa books. Maybe that's what built it. And so we made the commitment, and... Uh, it all fell apart at the gate, headed to the Philippines and Detroit. And my whole world set into a tailspin because what I fancied, God was mercifully destroying. It might be thing we start praying, Lord, destroy my fancy. If it's hindering my destiny, destroy my fancy. Destroy what I've made myself to be. Lord, break down everything I have built. That, that's a terrifying prayer. Destroy everything I have built. Only let what you have built remain. That's a heavy prayer. And I would not tell you to do it flippantly. But I would also say, if you really want God, like we all claim we do, and I believe it, and if you really want God, like I really believe we do, that might be a good prayer to begin to wade into the waters with. I'm even judging myself right now. Could I boldly say, Lord, destroy everything I've built and hope there's something left? I don't know if we're going to lead that prayer tonight, but it's something to throw out there and meditate on. What would that do? We say we want God, but to what end? For what purpose? To glorify what we've built or to be glorified in our life? Last Sunday, we talked about revival and and. The Samaritan said, will they revive these stones out of the rubbish? To what end do we revive stones but to build God's kingdom? If we revive people, it's to glorify God, not to put them back on track to keep doing their own selfish thing. So at gate A36, my fancy dissolved. And I'm left, kind of as the Old Testament prophet said, with my skirt lifted and I'm just naked. Because now I'm greatly humiliated because everything I've ever talked about was being missionary. Being a, I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary. I'm called to missions. I, I'm going to Africa. I'm heading to the Philippines. But I'm going to get to Africa. But I guess via the Philippines. Or maybe Asia. Maybe Asia's the thing now. And you just keep fabricating, fabricating, fabricating because of a lack of contentment. 
Pastor Vaughn could see that. And so I had to come back home, and even at that airport, I was so miserable, I would have happily cut a leg off just to have some peace. That misery is good, because it, it, it puts you in the place where you need to be. You can't serve God without a little bit of misery, just like you can't parent without a little bit of spanking. And that misery is good because it helps you affirm your decision to get back on track. And I love that the misery does not lift until you are solidified in your new path. That's why we pray misery over prodigals. Misery over backsliders. May they be miserable till they get right with you. Because if all they say is, I repent, and God takes the misery off, they repent in the wrong direction. And so the misery didn't leave until I consecrated my heart there at the gate. Went back out, booked a flight for Knoxville, came back in and started making phone calls in Cookville to try to get a job at TDEC as a geologist because I had a connection there. And I just said, all right, I'm going home. Never wanted to return to that little town, but it's all I know to do now. I'm bigger than Cookville. Thought I was better than Cookville, but I guess it's where I'm going. And once I made that decision, and set my face like flint, though I'm still at the same gate where I was heading to the wrong side of the world, all the pieces back on me. I'm literally sitting back in the same chair where the peace left me, but all the decisions change and the peace returns because the problem is never what's around you, but what you fancy, what you purpose, what you determine. That's why when the Lord starts asking you questions, it's never for his benefit. When the Lord asks you questions, we're in trouble with God. So I came home, and as I shared this morning, my, my family was incredulous, and that's fine. I was looking like a failure, and I get it. You, know, you don't want your 29-year-old son to be washed up looking like some kind of hippie chasing God, but I was chasing God. And I was ridiculed for wanting to come back here, but you take it, because you know where peace is. And... In that moment, I come home, I'm embarrassed. I gotta, that night, I returned to my parents' house. I had to call Jig Manalatu in Manila. He was going to be my roommate. We had been emailing. I emailed him. I emailed Rev, uh, Dr. Lucy Sheets. I emailed Dave Summerall. I emailed all of them to say, you're expecting my flight to land in 15 hours. I will not be on it. I don't have peace, and I'm not coming. And Jig emailed me back, and he said, man, don't be afraid. And I text or emailed Jig. I said, Jig, I'm not scared. Nothing scares me. I'll go anywhere. I got no peace, and I'm not leaving without peace. So anyway, then I had to call Dr. Lucy Sheets. I had just, Pete Summerall had just given me the prestigious missionary award, which uh, I only was getting because I was going to the Philippines. So they, got, they just had this big ceremony for me at our graduation, and now I'm not going. So I said, you want me to return the reward? No, no, you keep the award. I said, well, I'm really embarrassed, Dr. Sheets. And so then I had to call Pastor Tim Krause in Indy because his church had taken up this massive missionary offering for me when they sent me out. And I said, I'll send all the money back. He said, no, brother, just be blessed. That's how he was, be blessed. And then I had to call everybody else I knew and say, I'm not going. I just want to clear the air. I don't want you to think I'm there when I'm not. I'm back in Tennessee. Because you talk a big game, you got to clean up your mess. So my fancy dissolved, 
And then you're back to digging in the dirt, which you thought you would never have to do again. And you do what the last thing you know to do, which is serve God. So I got all this mess cleaned up. My dad's chewing my tail, you know, like a good dad will when he looks like his kid's being stupid. And he, you know, a little bit of shaking, a little bit of criticism, a little bit of ridicule. All right, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I'm going to do what I know to do, which is study my Bible. And I began studying that night on Elijah. And the, the title of my notes as I studied that night was Elijah Mighty But Emotional. So that was June of 2005, so 18 years ago. And over the course of that study, I recognized that Elijah fancied himself something, and it was a delusion. And God would only use it so far. And you study, I've preached it many times, and now I've got a big section in the botany book about Elijah Mighty But Emotional. He had worked up his own propaganda. And God would say, what are you doing? And he'd say, I, only I am left. It's a delusion. And they all seek my life, which was a delusion. They've torn, torn down your altars, which was a delusion. And there's none left, which was a delusion. And they seek my life, which was a delusion. And he espouses this three times in his life account in 1 Kings 18 and 19. He fancied himself God's only gift, God's only man. And that delusion of thinking he was something grand when he should have just seen himself as a servant cost him. And the delusion was so, so prominent, all it took was one real voice of ridicule to bring all his emotions to the surface. So he's mighty, commanding this and commanding that and commanding a drought and going and dwelling with the widow at Zarephath and, and then commanding Ahab to come and bring all the prophets and then commanding the people to build an altar. I mean, he's a one-man show and he's commanding, commanding, and everybody's obeying, obeying, and commanding rain and commanding the murder of the 400 prophets. And everything's winning, winning, winning. But at some point, the Lord has to deal with you about your delusion or your fancy because it can't last. It will all come to a screeching halt at gate A36. <laughs> and you'll find out what you're made of. You'll find out what you've been running from. And it all goes splat. And for Elijah, he found out he was emotional because he outruns a horse and chariot all the way from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, 30 miles, a marathon. You can you imagine outrunning a horse for a marathon, the swiftest chariot in the kingdom because it's the king's chariot. And then God leaves you for a season and you're left with your thoughts and your fancy and you realize your thoughts and your fancy don't cut it. And so in the course of four days, Elijah goes from commanding kings and the murder of prophets to suicide because that's how much strength your fancy has. And so for me to be thrown off my horse and I'm going to be a missionary and I end up back in the same engineering firm in Knoxville commuting back in the church I wanted to leave and never come back to, it helps to kind of recalibrate your delusion. The key is to never get that delusion. The key is to say, what are you? I'm a servant. What are you? I'm a servant of God. Well, you're a great teacher. Well, I appreciate that, but I'm a servant. 
I can tell you what God does with me, but what I am is a servant. And if you fancy yourself anything but a servant of God, a husband to a wife, a father to children, a faithful employee, you'll start to get into a lot of pride. And at some point, if you're going to continue, you have to come off that horse. And you can either dismount it yourself through humility by saying, Lord, tear down everything I've built. Or that horse can eject you at gate A36 or at the walls of Jezreel with Jezebel saying, may the gods do unto me as you've done unto the prophets if I don't kill you by this time tomorrow. And all of a sudden you realize, I am not as great as I thought I was. I'm not as spiritual, not as mature, not as emotionally stable. And so we call Elijah mighty, but emotional and truly a manic depressive. Writing euphoria and then subtle depression, then suicide. Let me die. Take my life. Just kill me. And then God breathes life into him and he continues in his delusion even further. He can't let the thing go and goes on two more times to espouse his delusion. I'm all there's left, God. No, you're not. I told you. I had that messenger tell you he hid a whole bunch of the prophets, a hundred in the caves and fed them with his own bread and water. They've torn down your altars. Yeah, but you just had them build you one. And I anointed it. They seek my life. No, only Jezebel does, and she can't find you. You're deluded. You're deluded. And the Lord asks him a second time, what are you doing here? And he rehearses his same delusion. We call it a fancy. He rehearses his fancy a third time, second time on the mountain. And that's when the Lord says, I'm done. I'm just done. I can't work with this. You ever, you ever done that? I can't work with this. I can't do this. Sometimes mama will say, I need you to come home. I can't deal with this. I can't do this. If you've ever been a boss, I can't do this. I can't work with this. If you've ever been in any kind of leadership, you've been there with a human being. I can't do this. I can't work with this. Don't ever be the one they have to say that about. But the Lord said it to his mighty man, Elijah, and said, I can't work with this. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to replace yourself. You follow your fancies long enough. And if your fancy isn't to be a servant, you'll be replaced. What I love at the end of that conversation of Mount Sinai, the Lord says, and by the way, there are 7,000 others who have not bent their knee to Baal. Just in case you think you're the only one. It's almost like, how, how stupid are you, son? All you've been espousing is you're the only one. You're the only one. You're the only one. You're the only one. So we ask, what, what, do we, what do you fancy yourself? And is it a servant? Because if we're talking about revival, revival comes to get you out of the rubbish, to put you on the wall or in the foundation to be a servant. And if you're not interested in being a servant, you don't need to be revived. If you want to be revived to do your thing for God, you'll never be revived. Because God revives you to do what he's called you to do, which is not your thing or your fancy. He revives you to find your place in the wall. And you find that grace and you just stay there. And you say, the Lord will use me as he sees fit. That's why Joshua Akwoko was finishing up his civil engineering degree. And I said, what are you going to do with it? He said, whatever God would have me. He didn't even fancy himself a civil engineer, but that's what he was getting a degree in. And we really do need to teach our children to ask the Lord, what would you have me do? And let them know they can go to college if they want, but if God does 
doesn't want them to, they shouldn't go to college. We ought to teach our children to fancy themselves servants of God. Go with me to Micah 6, if you can find that. I'll give you a minute to turn there. A fear and a dread. Josh, let's get this ready in the New Living Translation. Micah 6. What do you fancy yourself? If you have set upon some gifting or calling, I would encourage you to burn it. Because the truth is, if it's God, you can't burn it. But you might as well try and run from it. Because the truth is, you can't. Our church has had a reputation for making idols out of callings. Every church makes an idol out of something akin or special to that congregation, denomination, local church, or region. Every church, if they're not careful, creates some kind of sacred cow among their culture. For the Southern Baptists, up until recently, you didn't touch the SBC. You didn't touch the convention. But now they're realizing how corrupt it's become. For word of faith, you didn't touch confession. Oh, no, no, you don't touch that. You can't touch that doctrine. Uh, for Catholics, you don't touch the Pope or a lot of other things. There's a lot of stuff you can't touch among the Catholics. In our local church, you couldn't touch callings, but callings was like the trump card, as well as, well, I heard from God. You know, oh, I heard from the Lord. Well, I can't tell. If we can't judge it by Scripture, you didn't hear from God. We have to make sure everything in our life is touchable. The Lord is, is permitted to move through anything, drag his finger, and inspect it. And that's why we may, before we're done tonight, we may say, Lord, would you gently tear down anything I've built that isn't you? Please not with a wrecking ball. Please not with dynamite. Please not with an angry track cooperator. How about, Lord, you point it out and I'll deconstruct it until you realize how much fun it can be. And then you're like, oh, can I borrow the track hoe? Can I borrow that wrecking ball? It would be a lot of fun. I don't even want that thing in my life anymore. Let me release that giant ball and let it swing through that part of my life. Sometimes some of the delusions we've built are so old, we consider them holy, sacred relics. And we defend them like world heritage sites. But the Lord says, that's a trailer park in my kingdom. We need to make sure we're willing to give God anything. Any calling we think, any destiny we've dreamed, and just say, I go where God calls me. May he be glorified in my life. Micah 6, did you find it yet? New Living Translation, verse 1, Josh. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Now, once again, we're in a verse where... God is judging his people. Part of revival is judgment. The very fact that you're calling out for revival means the church is in a condition of disrepair and needs help. You don't do CPR on breathing people. You don't get the defib paddles out on healthy individuals. At least you shouldn't. Revival is a judgment. 
you're indicating we're, we're in need of life because we're on life support. We're in need of, of, of uh, rescue breaths because we're not breathing. We're in need of chest compressions because our heart isn't working on its own. The fact that we as a church are wanting revival. The nation is wanting revival. People are excited about revival. College groups are trying to spark theirs in their quads because they want some of this. It's a judgment against God's people. It's a judgment against God's churches. It's a judgment against God's pastors. If we're saying we need a move of God, it's because we don't have one. But once again, he'll revive you to be a servant. He's not going to revive you to go back to your own dirty business dealings. He's not going to revive you to be deluded. So don't ask to be revived if you don't want to be put on the bottom of the wall to be backfilled with dirt and nobody ever see you again. Well, no, no, it's not what I wanted. I wanted to be the big face and the big show. I wanted to be known. Well, then you don't want reviving because where God says he needs you is at the bottom of the foundation where you'll be eventually be covered up with dirt. Some kid might see you on the other side and draw on you one time, but that's all you're going to be seen. But you're still just as critical as the top rampart where everybody throws rocks and boulders. So just find out where God's called you and be happy to be there. State your, stand up and state your case against me, the Lord says. So it means he's got a problem with his people because there's a pride. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. God's people have always somehow managed to bellyache against him. May that not be us. I think we've all been carnal at some point, slapped something and said, God, it's not fair. Which part? The fact that you're missing hell? All you and I need to know is we're missing hell. That's all the unfair we need to know. There used to be a British Christian techno band I listened to back in the mid-90s called Worldwide Message Tribe. And they had this song called You Don't Get What You Deserve. And I hated it because I thought it was a bad faith confession. Because, you know, they're like, it's techno, so you kind of have to, like, sling light sticks and get in the groove. I was like, that's a dumb song. Until I read the lyrics, and it was all about you're not going to hell, so you don't get what you deserve. And you're not going to be cast off from God, so you don't get what you deserve. And then the lyrics changed up and said, uh, but we get what we don't deserve. We get love. We get grace. We get salvation. We get provision. We get protection. Things we don't deserve. So anytime you and I want to slap, it's not fair. State your case against God. See how that's going to go. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Uh, Micah, by the way, is prophesying during the time of Hezekiah. He is like Isaiah trying to uh, prevent the destruction of Israel. Micah finishes his prophetic ministry in the life of Hezekiah. After Hezekiah dies, all the judgment befalls Israel. And so God is trying to warn his people of judgment. Josiah comes along. He gives one last burst of revival, but cannot turn the sins of the people. We might could find a prophetic parallel and say there might be one last burst of revival. There might be one last Josiah generation before the Babylonian judgment of the tribulation befalls the world. But if we parallel that, the Josiah revival won't be 100% successful. It'll glorify God and it'll be cut short. Depends on if you want to take that prophetically. I don't care how you take it. Let's just be revived and be servants. 
But I just want you to know the context of this prophecy. Verse 3. O my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. That sounds like God's irritated. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Why are you tired of me? When you walk with God, you don't need reviving. You walk with God because you're not tired of him. When you walk with God, you exude joy. When you walk with God, you exude confidence. When you walk with God, you exude peace. When you walk with God, you're like a little micro-revival everywhere you go, and you can sit down and give somebody an encouraging word, and they'll text you later and say, you really refreshed me yesterday. You become a little micro-burst of revival yourself. But we really ought to judge ourselves and say, where are we tired of God? Where do we think he's been unfair to us? Where might we ought to say, Lord, where are you tired of me? Lord, where have I wearied you? Lord, what do you have against me? Because once again, revival is an admission. We're on life support. Then call for revival says, this is messed up. If we cry out, Lord, revive us. Well, he's going to say, well, you know what to do. Revive yourself. I'm all for revival. And I'm loving what God's doing these last couple of services. So we're going to keep it going. But I have to keep us balanced Because if not, especially in a mature church, which I loosely say, I don't want us to sound arrogant, but with a church with this much training, if we want to just let the revival be Holy Ghost welfare, it won't last long. We have to understand the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to reset us, to recalibrate our focus. Coming back to my my fancy dying, I never went to the Philippines. I could probably tell you now I'll never end up in Asia, which I fancied for a long time. I used to daydream and weep over Japan. Now, eh, like God bless them. God sends somebody to them. It's probably never going to be me because I created that in Holy Ghost services. I have many invitations now to go to Asia. I've got friends who have connections in Japan. And you know what? Well, it's not there for me. Don't care. I meant to ask Pastor Caleb. I didn't get a chance to, so he can correct me if I'm wrong, and we'll clean it up Wednesday. Or I won't be here. Somebody will clean it up. He pursued the military looking for the chaplaincy. I don't know if that was entirely the will of God for his life or not. He could testify to that. But I do know after four years or five years in the U.S. Army, God spoke to him in Louisiana to get out and return to Cookville to be trained at this church. But he was fancying something, trying to pursue it, and it wasn't working. And when he finally just submitted and obeyed God, he ends up where he's supposed to be, becomes a tremendous servant, him as Tiffany both. And when we have a church come available, they're the obvious choice to send out ASAP. But his fancy was slinging him in different directions that just wasn't working. You and I have got to just dial it back and say, Lord, I'm just a servant. Just send me where you want me to do it. Whatever you want. If it builds the kingdom, I'll do it. Instead of some kind of arrogant, well, not that. Didn't you read my resume? 
That's not the position I'm applying for. <laughs> Instead of saying, hey, put me on the floors. I'll be the best floor cleaner you got. I'll run this place in six months, and then I'll see what you want to do with me after that. Amen. Verse 4. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Wonderful ministry family there. Two brothers and a sister. God's rehearsing everything he's done for them. This is basically the parallel of our born-again experience. I brought you out of the world. I delivered you from spiritual slavery. I gave you pastors and prophets and prophetesses to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? Don't you remember when everything was working against you? You didn't even know it was going on because it was hidden from you, and I fought for you. He's asking his people, why are you irritated with me? Why are you wanting to quit? Why are you so emotional? Why are you mighty but manic, then depressive? Remember your journey from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. There's a journey there from Hebrew says Shittim. That's King James, the Acacia Grove from this location to Gilgal. That's where they entered the promised land. That covers 40 years of God's training. So don't you remember everything I did to teach you about me? He's saying, you're without excuse. I've invested in you. You've seen my signs and my wonders. You've seen my hand of provision. You've seen my defense, my fire by night, my cloud by day, my manna, my quail. You've seen water out of a rock. I did everything I could to teach you my faithfulness. How long does it take for us to learn about God's fidelity? Verse 6. What can we bring to the Lord? What kind of offering should we give him? Should we bow before him with offerings of yearling calves? So now the Lord's mixing up and saying, why are you so into works, 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 works? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? And see, now because... Uh, they're on trial. They want to get into works. All of a sudden, they want to do what they were taught to do, but they've missed the heart behind it. We've all been there. I know what I'll do. I'll just work harder. No, you missed the heart behind it. And the Lord says this, and this is what I wanted to help us with tonight. No, verse 8, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. Just do what is right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with, with your God. What's our calling? Every one of us is equal right here. Do what's right. That's what the law of God tells us what's right. On your job, in your home, with your kids, with your wife, with your neighbor. Just do what's right. And to... Love mercy. Be willing to extend people mercy, 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 mercy. Not judgment, not criticism, not always picking people apart. <laughs> I recently had a phone call with an individual, and they were asking me something. And when I told them the answer, they didn't want to know. It was so, it was so petty. 
I just, I, if it wasn't so personally hurtful, it would have almost been laughable because the second they didn't get the answer from me that they wanted, they criticized me, they criticized my wife, they criticized what I do. <laughs> and I thought, really? So that just tells me what's underneath the surface all along. That I can only keep that placated by giving you the answer you want, not the one that's genuine, true, sincere, or honoring God. So if I was prone to guilt trips, I could probably be easily programmed into always tiptoeing around placating unstable individuals. But I don't play that game. And so I don't know if the phone call ever happens again, I might tip it again just to see what they do next time because I guarantee you they've not resolved that internal issue. You call me up, ask me for something. I can't give it to you. So in response, you put me down instantly. Then you put my wife down. Then you insult what I do. So you weren't really a friend to begin with. You weren't really a compatriot to begin with. They don't love mercy. As a side note, we ought to be people who don't put pressure on each other. We ought to be able to say, hey, look, no pressure. If you can come, great. If you can't, great. We ought to be able to say, hey, I'd love for you to come over, but if you can't, it's all right. If you can't make it, I understand. I understand we want to have people in our life. We want to invite folks over. We want to do fun stuff. But if they can't make it, they can't make it. Don't guilt shame them. Don't manipulate them. Don't try to belittle them. Because if that's what it takes to get people to like you, you're a weird, sick individual. And so then the reply is going to be, yeah, this is why I don't want to be with you. Because this is the real you. The real you is not the facade of pleasantries you give me. The real you is what comes out when you're squeezed and you don't get your way. We ought to be those that love mercy. And if they can't make it, hey, they can't make it. They can't come over for Christmas, no problem. They can't come over for New Year's, no problem. They can't come over for dinner and a movie, no problem. Hey, love you. Let's catch up some other time. Some of my best friendships are those pastors who we recognize we stay super busy and we're not needy with each other. There's just mercy. And to walk humbly with, with, with your God. And when you walk with your God and he has to say, what are you doing here? You'll say, I'm scared. I'm fearful. Well, Lord, you know, I thought I was called to the Philippines, but I guess I'm not. Lord, I can't explain it. Lord, my, my head is messed up now. I, the last 10 years of my life was headed towards the Philippines. Well, actually, truth be told, the last 10 years was headed towards Africa. Philippines came out of nowhere and I hopped on it. When you walk with the Lord, it's easy to rebound and recover because you're walking with the Lord and he'll sustain you because whatever the failure, fall, foible, fall is, he saw it coming and he didn't talk to you about it yesterday and you were still walking with him yesterday. Why should a trip affect your relationship with him today? If you have a walk with him, why would your trip affect your walk with him today? If you have a walk with God, surefire, solid, never perfect because we're not there, but you love God, you pray, you read your Bible, you do what you know to do, you do the basics that tethers you and anchors you in the storms of life, how come a new storm comes up and it causes you to fall apart? Except that maybe you weren't as tethered as you thought you were. The 
the Philippines debacle was probably one of the hardest emotional battles I ever had to fight because I was 29, 10 years of my life was marching towards that. I was worried about what everybody thought. Would they think I was a failure? Would they think I was a liar? Would they think I was a fraud? How did I, the other question was, how did I miss it so big? I really felt I submitted it to everybody I knew. My pastor in Indy, Pastor Darren, Pastor Vaughn. How did I miss it so bad? And it, it took a while for my head to stop swimming in that delusion. And I, my, my judgment now was that in the end, I did not miss it, that it was the will of God for me to go initially because it was a one-year commitment. Looking back now and seeing how everything has played out, Pastor Vaughn died. We've taken over the church, which, by the way, if you didn't know, this is in Africa. This isn't Sierra Leone, which is where I was going to go and be with the monkeys. This isn't Metro Manila. This is Metro Cookville. Looking back, I could have gone, fulfilled the one-year contractual obligation, come back to Cookville, spent the last year of Pastor Vaughn's life with him, and still been here to take over the church. But what we discovered 10 or so years after I backed out was that corruption set into that ministry in every area. And there was a lot of, I don't want to say embezzlement. There was bribery going on while I was packing, literally packing and preparing to move. And I had no idea about it. It's still tied up in court to this day. Some of the people involved are dead now. But in that year, a lot of the major players tied around what I was about to do were being corrupted through money. And so my best judgment today was that in the January of that year, it was the will of God that I go. But by the time I get ready to go, those who should have been passing mature Christian tests of fidelity and ethics failed, failed, failed. And the will of God was to prevent me from falling into that spoiling. And so... Somehow I ended up with those legal proceedings at 2 a.m. one night, seven or so years ago, and I just wept looking at the dates, knowing where I was, what meeting happened right before my meeting in the same church, what was going on there. I read all these massive uh, uh, legal discoveries when you go into discovery mode and you start looking into things. And so still took some time. But if I hadn't had a genuine walk with God, I'd have never recovered. Your walk with God recovers you. Your walk with God recovers you. If your aim is to be a servant, your walk with God recovers you. If your aim is to be famous, you're deluded. If your aim is to be known, you're deluded. If your aim is to be famous, you're deluded. If your aim is to be seen, you're deluded. We just walk with God. Little by little. Here little they're little, and God takes care of us. Verse 9, last verse. Fear the Lord if you are wise. <laughs> Pretty simple. His voice calls to everyone in Jerusalem. He calls to everybody in the engrafted word church. Fear him. Don't fear man. Don't worry about what we think. Fear God. Because he says this, the armies of destruction are coming. 
And though I don't believe that's going to happen next week, and I don't believe that's going to happen until the tribulation, it is going to happen. The armies of destruction are coming. I'm not, I'm not a big Bible prophecy guy, and by that I mean I don't teach it a lot, and I'm certainly not going to give you weekly updates, but they're out there a lot right now, and everybody's talking about World War III. They were talking about one world order. 20 years ago, and now we're, we're pushing even closer to one world order. And now they're talking World War III, and they're talking about China getting involved with Russia. And it's crazy stuff lining up with Ezekiel if you study it. My point is that this stuff is really starting to push towards prophetic fulfillment. It's a good time to get right with God, and not just right with the local church, but right with God. The armies of destruction are coming, and the Lord is sending them. So this is a good time to fear God. Get right. Serve him. Be genuine. If you need to, pray that the Lord reveal himself to you in a way that causes a fear and a reverence. I love God. I, I'm not afraid of God. I'll throw my hand or my life at his judgment because he's merciful. But we can't kid ourselves. We have to hold our sin right there in front of us and say, Lord, this is what I'm struggling with. Or maybe you're fancy. Lord, I've always fancied myself a singing evangelist. That was Scudder's testimony. Now, he's the opposite side of the quarter of a singing evangelist. He's a teaching pastor in Africa. His style of singing would be entertainment for them because it would almost be laughable. <laughs> but he's a teacher. He builds up ministers and helps pastors. Whatever it is you've held on to now, keep it in front of God. Lord, I fancied myself this. What, what do you say for me today? It's possible your vision for your life expired 20 years ago. At some point, you're no longer fathering children. You're fathering married people. At some point, you're no longer husbanding a 25-year-old woman. You're husbanding a 65-year-old woman. She has different needs. There's no place where we master anything. There's only the next phase of, God, I need help. At some point, you're no longer 35 pastoring a church. You're 46 pastoring a church, and it's in a different place. We have to stay current with God. So whatever you fancied yourself up to till today, maybe here right now we're going to put it on the altar. It could be you've steered your life by it too long, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. You've neglected justice and mercy. It, it may be you've neglected the genuine calling of God because your culture, your upbringing, your flavor of Christianity put a vision in you that was never God. What we ought to say is if the Lord will, we shall do this, that. Bide here, yield, buy, sell, get gain. What we ought to say is whatever the Lord wants is what I do. I don't know why we still have control of our life. So let's stand to our feet. Let's pray in the Spirit. And I'm going to see what we can do. I'm actually a little nervous about pressing into the Spirit. But we trust God. And we might wade out into the waters a little bit and see what we could present to the Lord. And I, I would speak for him and say that God is gracious. He's merciful. He's gentle. He will not quench a burning flax or smoking flax. He'll not break a bruised reed. And whatever you give to the Lord, whatever he takes from you, he'll touch you. And that's what we want more than anything. We just want God's hand on our life. Anything you can give him, he'll receive as a gift, an offering, a sacrifice. He'll be blessed by it and bestow upon us his blessing. 
So what is it we can't give him? What calling, what fancy, what fear, what shame? So let's pray in tongues, or if you want to pray in English, but let's talk to the Lord about whatever he's ministered to you tonight about. I don't know everything he's talking to you about. I just have my three things I needed to hit. And then let's see what the Holy Spirit wants to do, all right? We're in no rush. One thing about revival is you can't put a time cap on it. So if you think we're going to be done by 8 o'clock, put that on the altar too.